Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to the Fintech Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today, I interview Paul Resnick of Finometrica. Finometrica is a risk assessment company. They provide tools in order for advisors to better assess the risk tolerance of their clients in order to ensure that the portfolios they're being placed in are not beyond their tolerance of risk. This sounds simple enough, but unfortunately, the industry is taking a bit of a back-of-the-napkin approach to how this sort of thing is done. So this is a bit of a different interview in that, unlike most fintechs, Finometric has actually been around since the 90s. They may have started in a non-technology way, but they've adapted to changing climates, and their entire platform is now digital and, on, and cloud-based. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Paul as he shares his journey and explains to us how he's tried to turn the art of risk assessment into a science. Now, fair warning, some of my personal biases on how financial advisors should work come out in this podcast, so I hope I don't offend too many people. Enjoy. Hello, Paul. How are you doing today? I'm well, my mate. How are you? Uh, I'm very well. Thank you for making the time. So where are you today in the world? I am in Tel Aviv. I'm on my way to London later this week, and I've just come from Ireland. And as you may have picked up, um, I live in Australia where uh, we established Finometrica some 20-odd years ago. I want your frequent flyer miles. <laughs> anyway, so, yes, yeah, so tell us about Finometrica, what it does, and who it services. Okay, so we started Finometrica essentially in 1994, but if I, if I brought things back uh, even earlier, um, been in the financial services industry for almost 50 years. So I've gone through almost every cycle and worked down every silo there is in, uh, in financial services. Um, but it was 87 that, that I think was the trigger event. Uh, and it was um, an almighty crash. And from that, in Australia, two things emerged. One was the... Um, the ability to consolidate retail investment products onto onto single platforms. And the other was the recognition that most people weren't prepared for their portfolios crashing. I, I was a uh, an investment product manager for a life insurance company in Australia in, in 87. And by 94, I'd converted that experience into two projects. One was a platform for multi-assets to be held for individuals. We called them RAPs in Australia or master funds. And the other was this process of saying, I'm surely we can do a better job of matching investments to the needs of clients and making sure that their expectations are appropriately framed so that when there is a crash, they won't run or conversely, when the markets boom, they won't chase the market up. And it was 94 we started the project. We measure individuals' tolerance of financial risk, which is a psychological trait. It's a personality trait. Being personality, it tends not to change with age, knowledge, or experience. So once it's established, it tends to be relatively stable. And um, what it does is it provides a foundation for the next part of the planning process, which says, Will the portfolio, consistent with your risk tolerance, the 
growth assets and defensive assets split, mutual financial needs as they fall through. And that's essentially what we started in 94. This is a way to collaborate with clients and, and enable them to own the asset allocation and portfolio because it will be meeting their articulated needs. Now, in 94, how much risk profiling was actually going on? I mean, even to this day, a lot of advisory practices simply do not do this short of making recommendations on what they think without doing much research. I still hear it's a struggle with many people in this industry to get advisors to do this. But I kind of think back when you started this, it must have been frontier territory. Um, I think what you're saying, it's still frontier territory. (laughs) Unfortunately. Um, Yeah, we were not received with huge excitement, and we still continue not to be received with excitement. Um, Planners find our stuff often intrusive. There's a long tradition of telling people what to do. They've come to me because I'm the professional and I know the best portfolio for them. So it's been a long and tortuous journey. 94 we started, we launched in 98. So it took us four years of research and building the platform. And even now it is only in regulation over the last two or three years where risk profiling, risk tolerance is being asked to be done. Rarely is is there anything in the regulation that says you have to do it well, that you have to do it with any rigour. And it's only in the last little while that even the European regulation has got to it. It's from essentially January the 3rd earlier this month that European planners have to uh, take into account clients' risk tolerance. But once again, no detail about how it should be done. And um, many advisors, unfortunately, uh, haven't, we haven't been able to convince them of the benefits of the client owning their plan. And it's this tension between the telling um, professionals and the collaborative professionals. And at the moment, goals-based planning that many of, uh, uh, of your listeners will, will be now familiar with is the other limb of this. Um, Often there's a trade-off between uh, the plan that will allow you or the asset allocation that will enable you to sleep at night and the one you need to achieve your goals. We need to be able to illustrate that in a way that the client can make the trade-off decisions. And that's the whole basis for an ongoing relationship. It's a very different one from one that says, I know what's a good asset and I know which ones are overpriced and underpriced. So collaboration goes to the very heart of challenging, heart of the challenge to investment-oriented advisors, and it's a long journey. We have a very crude Australian term, which uh, you may wish to obliterate, but it goes something like this. Well, I don't think we'd be censored in Canada, but go ahead. Yeah, it's like pushing shit uphill with your nose in the rain. Okay. Uh Fair enough. I totally understand it. So, I mean, you say it's still frontier. Do you feel we're making inroads in that regard? Because, I mean, frankly, this entire concept of, of you know, I'm going to meet with this client and maybe have a conversation, and that's going to allow me to assess their risk tolerance is something that's always been bizarre to me. We've often said that this industry, people treat it like an art and not a science. And frankly, if we're ever going to be treated at the same level as any other profession, we need to get away from that. Well, so that's the whole argument. So, we measure risk tolerance scientifically. We use a psychometric test. You know, as I said, it took us four years to put together our 25 questions. 
Can you clarify uh, like, the process that was involved and like what you went through to put through? I mean, this is 25 questions and it took years. So I'm very curious it, as to what led to that. We tested 150 questions and we got, this is a brilliant question. It's full of insight. But by the time we looked at um, 500 responses to it, we thought, no, nah, no, nah, most of them are answering answer four. The question may be okay, but the options don't work. So you're testing and retesting to make sure that you actually get a full spread, that you don't get any false questions that add little value. So we've now done up close to 1.2 million tests. We retest our data every couple of years. We originally with the University of New South Wales, which is in Australia, but now with the London School of Economics with some psychometricians there. And the data has been run through by probably 20, 30 PhD and master's students as they've looked for patterns between what we discovered and, uh, and other data. And what the data basically says is risk tolerance is a personality trait. Personality tends not to change. It tends not to. And there are just some generic rules. Men tend to be more risk tolerant than women. People in financial services tend to be more risk tolerant than their clients. Yes, because they believe run... they know better, but go on. <laughs> yeah, well, this is part of what goes on. People who run hedge funds have risk tolerances that go off the, off the scale. High risk tolerance and overconfidence are bedfellows. And education, age, and experience tends not to have a material influence. I'm actually so quite people... surprised by that finding simply because, I mean, you know, personal experience. The clients, when, when markets are frothy, they start to get greedy, right? And when, when markets are poor, they, you know, they, they basically are act more fearful. So I found that, you know, the emotional, maybe, maybe their total risk tolerance when you measure it objectively doesn't change. But we, we can all testify to the fact that the emotional factor definitely yeah, drives yeah. the concept. And, and I guess maybe it depends upon what point in their lives or what's going on in their minds when you take that test. Is that consistent throughout? It is. So here's the rub. What you're talking about in terms of their responses to the news is actually sentiment. It's not their risk tolerance. Mm. So what you've got to be able to do in your review is understand this is a perception issue and it's they perceive there's opportunity or they perceive there's risk and their behaviour follows it. It's nothing to do with their risk tolerance. So we've done, as you can imagine, tests and retests. We've got... One, as I said, 1.2 million tests. And if I sh showed you the line, which is this is the average test score per month back to 1998, and compare that to, say, the, um, to the local equity index or if we're doing a, the global data to one of the global indexes of equity performance, you'll see there's barely a fluctuation between scores before and after. So what we basically know is that it's very easy to get caught up with the noise and the froth, but personality does tend to be consistent. Now, that's averages. Remember, we've got big data. I'm not saying that individuals won't change, but the almost, I would argue, perfect empirical base, we charge the highest price in the global marketplace for our risk tolerance test. Our clients tend to be 
personal financial advisors in each of the countries in which we work. And we work in about 20 countries. So if our test wouldn't work, we would not be in business. Fair enough. They, they would simply not pay the renewal fee. So let's, add, let's, let's go to that. What is so... Actually, before we get to the price, let's just go through the process of what the software does. I know it, but let's walk through uh, for the listeners. Okay. So essentially, um, we start off with a questionnaire, which is 25 questions. And we don't measure investment risk tolerance. We measure something a bit broader. We call it financial risk tolerance. So we're measuring something which is their full financial perspective of the world. And let me juxtapose that with other risk tolerances that you may have come across. Um, something like ethics, that there's an array of outcomes in terms of, of individuals' ethical adherence. There's physical risk tolerance. Some people um, seem to, to want to, to push the adrenaline both at weekends and during the week, and other people are fearful of walking across the road. There is social risk tolerance. Some of us dress in lurid shirts and, uh, and others of us in, uh, in blue suits with white shirts. These are separate risk tolerances. There is no cross-contamination of one to the other. And essentially, from our 25 questions, we're able to say, compared to others, this is where you are. And in our case, we, the scores are between 0 and 100, and we illustrate it through a bell curve. So... The vast majority of people are in the middle of the bell curve. We have seven risk groups. In risk groups one and seven, we have 1% of the population. The next risk group in has got six. The next 24 in the middle one has 38. So the vast majority of people are in that middle group. So that middle group, what does that correspond to in terms of an equity allocation? Give or take 50-odd percent, slightly above 50% equity exposure. Okay. So basically the software sends out this questionnaire. I know you have a shortened version. I think a 12-question questionnaire. Is that the case? A, that's correct. We have a 12, which um, in our latest review with, with the LSA, we've, uh, we've discovered that a couple of the questions weren't adding any great value to our score. So it'll be reduced to 10 in our, in our new updates, which will due out in March, which will be probably called Finometrica 3.0, and so our short questionnaire will be uh, 10 questions, and it basically uses questions from the 25 test, and same bell curve, just slightly simpler in terms of reporting. In seven risk groups, we have five, and what we've done is we've glued together risk groups one and two, which made up um, 1% and 6% of the population, so that's now 7% in the lowest group, and then we've glued together risk groups six and seven, which are also 6% and 1%, so they represent 7%. We've added a, another algorithm in there because what's clear is that while we score individual each individual out of 100, we also report back how people answer questions. And let, let me give you an example. If you have a test where somebody could sit down and answer the first question high, the second question low, the second, third question high, fourth question low, and so on, and get a score of average, let's say 50, and no comment that this person was mad, 
you know the test is flawed. In the case of our 10-question test, we report those anomalies. Okay. So at the end of the day, you know, you're, you streamlined this system, which is great, but you're, it's basically a risk profile questionnaire, clearly best in class, and essentially spits out a range based on whatever, you know, we, can, we can input, from what I can see, we can input what the asset allocation would be or the equity allocation would be in our various standardized portfolios. And then we would be told based on that, which portfolio the client has a best fit with, correct? That would be correct. So you take your model portfolios and we give you what we call a mapping facility. Essentially, you just take your portfolios and x-ray them for what you believe is the growth and defensive split. So typically, you might have three portfolios or four, mm -hmm. just to give you an example, 25% growth assets, 50, 75, and 90. You know, it's you interesting because the thing is, is that I've seen tons of questionnaires over the years. Every fund company, every investment company basically generates their own. Clearly, they don't go to the same depth of research that you do. I've often, I've often scratched my head as to how some of these results work, because I'm, I'm sure you've seen this. And I'm sure you can testify to this. The, sometimes you'll get these questionnaires where they show them these return sequence patterns, and you know, client will definitely say that they're not able to stomach something at a certain level. But then what will happen is the recommendation will in turn be something, the portfolio that has that degree of risk, which is always very shocking to me. I take it, you know, the, the level of depth that you've gone here, you're looking at this from various parameters, as you said, I guess it's far less likely to happen with you, is it not? What we know is the markets will do what the markets will do. So what are we looking for? So we do essentially three bits. Let me just get to finish with this second and put it, this third bit into context. Sure. We're able to take a score that the client says, this is me, or not me. So it's a discussion. But assuming that the, we, the clients agree, we say, well, this, this model's across to, maps across to this portfolio. Let's assume it's a new client, so we're not dealing with, with an existing asset grouping. But we then say, this is the model portfolio. These are our capital market assumptions. Let's look at broadcasting that, projecting that, if... Uh, we have an integration with Plan Plus, who we merged with a few months ago, but mm -hmm. um, we can integrate with any other Monte Carlo model. And you say, well, this is the likelihood of you achieving re your reasonable goals. What would you like to do? Now, you can test that portfolio, um, scenario test it. We have integrations, for instance, with a New York-based scenario testing suite called Rick Streamer that some of your listeners may, uh, may have heard of, where you take a particular portfolio and you say, what can happen if, uh, in a 2008 if gold goes up $300, if oil goes back up to 120 So you look at a range of scenarios and say, well, can the client live with that? Can they live with it financially? Um, can they live with it um, psychologically are the two answers. So we provide that in two ways. So you can go to Rick Streamer to do the modelling. You can use our back history. So we provide in each, I think, of nine main countries in which we work, um, 11 portfolios with a back history up to almost 50 years, looking at 18 storyboards. 18 stories to benchmark that to the client's particular circumstance. So let me give you an example. We look at the nominal returns, the highs and the lows. We look at the adjusted for inflation returns. We look at the 10 worst falls, how long it took to crash, how long it took to recover. 
we look at the 10 highest rises. We look at benchmarking against the, lo the local bank deposit, term deposit, treasury, whatever the local benchmark is. So we provide an array of mechanisms to enable the advisor to frame expectations with the client. Now, we do that with Infinimetrica. We have an integration into a Plan Plus, which enables that as well, and stuff like um, Rick Streamer and any other software that we happen to integrate with. We're, we're always delighted to, to explore an integration with other people's planning software. We so, have integrated in several countries. But what that does is it provides the collaborative process that says, let's start with something really easy. Do the test. We're not asking you to tell us about your balance sheet, your goals, your aspirations. We're not asking you to reveal your deepest personal secret. We're asking you to invest 15 minutes. What we'll discover together is what makes you and your partner unique, if you've got a partner. I can then show you a portfolio that you could be comfortable with. We can then scenario test it against your goals and needs, and that gives us a plan. Next year, the plan will start, as ever, with your risk tolerance. It's unlikely to change. Sometimes it does. We've, we've come across circumstances where it does, but it tends not to. But it's pretty certain that your, your current portfolio, your savings and your spending and your insurance and your aspirations will have changed. We now have the basis for an ongoing advice-based relationship. Here is the fundamental planning system for you to take control as much as you wish to do so of your financial life. Okay. So tell me about the merger with Plan Plus. What was the, you know, let's just share, first of all, uh, Sean will be on the podcast uh, shortly in a couple of weeks, I think. But tell me a little bit about Plan Plus and why the merger with them. Fairly practical reason. We're based in Australia. Give or take 90% of our revenue is international. Sean is based in Canada. And when we were out traveling, talking about what's, what we believe to be good advice, advice that clients owned rather than clients were told, Sean was there with us. Um, we, had, we had completed an integration almost 10 years ago of our two systems, and uh, we spent time looking for joint clients. Um, my original partners are even older than me. <laughs> uh, my original partner turned 70 a couple of years ago, and he needed an exit. Um, we got to talking with Sean, and it made good sense. To, we had a great deal of complementarity. Um, our business was just risk tolerance. We had no in-house in technologists. We always outsourced any build to our preferred partner. So we were a very lean and mean business. We had essentially five and a half, six staff, and most of those people were accounting. Sean, on the <laughs> other hand, had a planning software business and had the, both the need and the rationale to have um, a, a solid technology business within his, his enterprise. Putting the two together gave us the best of both worlds, an international perspective where we could illuminate the very best of technology being applied to what we believe was great advice. 
with the best will in the world when you do an integration with other businesses, almost invariably the integrations are a compromise because each party only wants to do enough to test the marketplace. But when you're jointly owned, you actually do it with your uh, with all your heart and all your mind. And what we wanted to be able to show the world how well an integration looks and the benefits that it will bring to our joint clients. Uh, our clients need to be able to illustrate um, financial needs and capacity and Sean's clients needed to take into account risk tolerance. So it was a, a very neat complementarity that we had seen 10 years ago. We just had a very, very slow the process. You got there in time. Fair enough. So we mentioned price. You said you're you know, best in class there. So what, what does it cost for someone to implement Phenometric in their practice? Give or take $800, $900 a year in uh, various countries. We, Like many businesses, we tried a global similar price mm-hmm. for every country. It took us about three years to recover from the bruising that caused. <laughs> Uh, what we basically do is we recognize the value that we bring in each country. In some, the value is high, people are prepared to pay the price, and others, everything is scaled down and we scale down to meet markets. So, we'll give or take, it'll be under $1,000 in the Canada. You know, back to the entire difficulty you say is still frontier. You know, it's interesting because in many ways, look at that price and I say, well, that's completely reasonable to base your business about. Something that's so core to investment management to pay that much for a year is a, is a steal. And quite frankly, though, I'm sure that I would get plenty of competitors saying the other advisors saying the complete opposite simply because they'll use whatever thing was conceived of with, with little scientific research that's available out there. Or they'll just pick it out of thin air. In a lot of ways, unfortunately, I don't envy your position. You're fighting with air in a lot of cases. We are. We're fighting for um, for mind space. We're fighting for people to stop long enough and listen. And um, you know, Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman, um, the the, uh, the psychologist who got the Nobel Prize for economics. Uh, yeah, one of the founders uh, of behavioral <laughs> finance. Yeah, I think his later book, Thinking Fast and Slow, pretty much describes our process. Thinking fast is our great survival. Thinking slow hurts. And the people that think slow yes. tend to be eaten by the crocodiles and fall off the edge of cliffs because they're, they're, uh, they're too busy thinking and not paying attention. Those that think fast are using mental shortcuts, are using their intuition, are buying brand, are doing what everybody else does. And that's the fundamental human human condition. Those of us that stand at the edge are vulnerable, and it takes a long while. Um, the notion of paradigm shift um, resonates very clearly. Um, I don't know if many of your readers will remember, but paradigm shift came about, it was brought to the world by a guy called Thomas Kuhn, who was mm-hmm. a, a sociologist of knowledge and probably 25 years ago. And it was looking at the shift from an Earth-centered to a Sun-centered universe. In an Earth-centered universe, everything had its place because we were at the very epicenter of the universe. The moment you went to Sun-centered, everything lost its place. Hmm. Um, What it did, in an Earth-centered universe, you couldn't navigate because you couldn't work out what the stars did. 
you couldn't work out why the moon was where it was because you couldn't, the mathematics yeah, didn't work. work. Yeah. The moment we went to Sun Centered, we could navigate. Navigate enabled us to be commercially more, uh, more robust. We could actually go to other places, colonize them, and move goods around. It's so interesting how it took that, that, years for that sorry. from people saying it, the maths doesn't work because there was a built-in bias to say, no, we didn't need Earth-centered universe because we need this great chain that enables no social mobility. The moment you have a god, you have a pope, you have a king, you have a lord, you have a serf. We don't want social mobility, everything in its place. So that there is your prime example of human behavior. It took 2,000 years. We've only been at this since 1994. It's such an apt, apt analogy because, I mean, everything you described in terms of, you know, the thinking fast and slow process and, and the shifting from something that uh, an environment where you can't really explain what happens because it's more of an art than a science. And then when you convert, when you make that paradigm shift, the science becomes true. That is so such an apt analogy for the financial planning industry in general, simply because, I mean, you look at the origins of this industry, it goes back, you know, financial planning, probably 40 years at most. I mean, investments have been around for a lot longer than that, but modern portfolio theory goes back to, I believe the seventies and, and Fifty-two, fifty-two. So far earlier than I thought it was. So nevertheless, but I mean, at the time it was pretty much useless because you didn't have computers that could run those equations. And now it's yes. now it's now it's a stalwart force. And I, you know, the interesting thing too is I can imagine the cynics out there saying, "Well, do I need this severity? Or you know, how bit you know how bad is it?" Well, are you familiar with the study that's being done out of Georgia on risk? Um, it was a survey that was done, and Sean at, at Plan Plus was part of this, where they surveyed different advisors about what would you do in these various scenarios. What would the target allocation for this client be, for this client be, for this client be? And the results were completely all over the map. It was so bad, and I'll, I'll take away from you some time from you here, but it was so bad such that there was one scenario, one case that was identical, that was separated by one question, and it resulted in completely different answers from the same advisors. Yes, so there are a couple of comments I can make on that. One is the, the one that took me a long while to get to, and then I went, oh, dear. Most people are not taught in any of the courses I've seen how to do a financial plan. So there's no education. What there is is a series of here are some words that you have to apply, but nobody teaches financial planning. The planning that I described before needs technology. This trade-offs between risk capacity, risk required, and risk tolerance you need to be able to illustrate. The moment you have that and you have that in front of a client, you have a plan. And what that research showed, that in the absence of any discipline, advisors go with the one that best meets their personal predilection. Well, there was an observation made at the FPA conference as to what the best fit model that actually fit the results. And shockingly and frighteningly enough, it was 100 minus age. That, that old yeah. rule of thumb but, was the only thing that really was the best fit model for that entire process. And that was, to me, just utterly shocking. I, you know, both hands, you know, my face went to both my hands at that point, thinking, how are we still at this level? And that's because our educate nobody knows what, this is the arrogance of, of the entrepreneur that, that we got to in <laughs> 94, which was, why did we do this? Well, we did this because in 87, I saw my business absolutely smashed. We went from writing 50 million a month to one because wow. nobody trusted us. 
uh, marketing materials, I had written them, did not disclose how bad things could be. I remember the furious clients coming in and telling me that I didn't deserve to clean shoes for anybody based wow. on, my, on my skills at uh, communicating risk. That was 87. It is now a full 30 years later, and we still only have words in the regulation. Nobody tells you how to do it. And so it's not surprising people do mental shortcuts. What's the easiest mental shortcut? Uh, your asset allocation is, is taken away from 100. I can remember that. It's the same as what's the best retirement income. It's currently 4%. Why? Because it's the easiest thing to remember. But what we're trying to do is the exact opposite. Stop it being a meaningless formula, but it being the plan of the client. I mentioned before this notion of you want the client to own it. There's a methodology to do that. It's never taught. It is unbelievably simple, and it is basically this. You want to be able to prove you know the client. You want to be able to prove that you've explored with the client the multiple options that are available to them at whatever age. Should we think about saving more? Should you think about taking more risks? Should you think about converting other assets? Should you think about re-qualifying to, to, to earn more money? Third proof is prove whatever product you've got to, you understand that product. Because the final part of the process is to say to the client, based on your current circumstances, your needs, goals and aspirations, this is the product that I'm recommending, this mixture of products and services will meet your goals. Mm -hmm. This, however, is what could happen when it goes wrong. But if it's the case of accumulation, shouldn't be a problem. You'll just buy more because you're going to continue to save. In decumulation, you may need to change some of your spending patterns. We need to be able to, to test now your capacity for loss. Are you now comfortable to proceed? Because what we've got is we've got history that will tell us something about volatility and uncertainty and recovery. And we can use that as a decent starting place to say, well, what would happen if it took 10 years to recover? What would you do if you've got liabilities you've got to meet? Maybe we need to do something about those so that you can reduce your spending. Maybe you'd move out of the city. Maybe you move in with one of the kids. Maybe you, uh, you downsize. Maybe you divorce your wife. There that never results ways. in a better outcome. <laughs> never. I'm sure you're right. <laughs> I'm just thinking, as I said it, that was putting foot into mouth. Uh, there you go. I gotcha. But that's the client's plan. It's not the planner's plan. The planner generally is a highly numerate investment person who's gone into the industry because they love what Investments. they Investments, yep, that's typically the case, unfortunately. And they're not their clients, and they unfortunately project their own risk tolerance onto their clients, and in turn, the people running the money project their risk tolerance onto the advisors. Yep. And why in our industry, for instance, do we not have independent training, continue education points? What we've got are, are, are two utterly unacceptable outcomes. What we have, most of it comes from fund managers who are using it as a way of, of influencing clients. Yep. And then we have professional bodies that don't teach financial planning. 
yeah, it's a sorry story. It is, um, and, and the, the industry, you know, the people deserve better. And I, you know, the only the only thing I will say is we are still such a new industry. Figuring this out. I mean, doctors, lawyers, accounts have had thousands of years in some case to figure out their institutions and the regulation. But that's no excuse for us to sit back and not move forward on this stuff. And unfortunately, you know, I think personally, I think there's hope because I see regulation starting to happen. I just don't think it's necessarily the right regulation and it's not happening fast enough. And every country is a little bit different. But, you know, you think about it. Here's a weird outball question for you. Have you ever been asked to like, testify in court? No, I've provided advice to people that have, but I haven't actually done it myself. It's interesting because I, I look at what you do and I think about what the average person does. And I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've had someone who's 67 years old, nervous beyond belief, walk in with a portfolio that's 100% equity. And this is someone who was never suited to it. And I, you know, whatever risk analysis I use, which is nowhere near as complex as, 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 as proven as yours, which I need to take a much more serious look at yours. It's very obvious that this person has been far, exactly as you said, far too exposed to risk because the, the manager has imposed their risk tolerance onto the client. And I think to myself, you know, given how the, the shoddy way in which we manage things and the industry manages things and the shoddy way in which risk tolerance assessments are done, I can't imagine that there won't be a time that you'll be called in as an expert witness at some point. Because <laughs> well, it just seems like it would make sense. Well, I think you're right. But, but here's the other part which I'll, I'll give you as expert witness. I was saying earlier, I left the corporate world in 91 and I'd set up a life company and an asset management business in the few years before I left. So I was very conscious about how you value your business. And the 87 um, crash really had helped me better understand it. And it goes back to simple common sense. The reason you do this properly is not singly to provide a better service to clients because you have a moral obligation to do so, though you do, and a fiduciary obligation if you're a professional. It's really to be part of an unbelievably successful business. The present value of a future income stream from clients who are satisfied, who don't churn portfolios because they're chasing the wind, is going to be significantly better. You're preaching to the choir. I mean, I, I fully believe that that's how I've run my practice and our turnover rates are incredibly low and, you know, these relationships last decades. So I fully believe what you're saying. Um, let me ask you, so this is a pretty limited space in terms of who's competing. Like what competitors do you have in this space right now? Well, the crass arguments, well, we have indolence, we have arrogance, <laughs> and we have hubris. So we have, I mean, people who are so selling something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's still, I was looking at a survey the other day, over 50% of advisors surveyed were using in-house risk tolerance tools. Oh, was that a T3 survey uh, or was that something else? Yeah, it was a T3 one last yeah. year. But that's not unusual when I talk. You know, I mean, in any one year, I'm probably in six or seven countries talking to people. In the UK, we compete with a company called Oxford Risk. Oxford Risk is an outplay from Oxford University and that they are a psychometric house and they have a financial services piece. In the US, our major competitor is a firm called Riskalyze. Riskalyze use a different approach. Um, ironically, based on, um, on some psychology, some Car Daniel Kahneman work, um, according to their, their marketing, that they use gamble, gamble questions to assess risk tolerance. <laughs> so that they give clients... Um, views of, of upside and downside of a portfolio value 
in six months' time and uh, and look for the tipping point for gains versus losses and uh, and take the view that that's a measurement of risk tolerance. So I've, often, those are the I've often felt ones. that when we, talk, we start talking about investments in the parlance and the language of gambling, I mean, they're both based on probability. But I mean, I, I find we do ourselves such a disservice with that because it just perpetrates this this belief that what people are doing is gambling. I mean, risk and gambling are two very very different things. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, we're about to publish a, a paper on the flaws of gamble theory, and you've hit one of the major ones that that it does not seem to be aligned with what we're trying to do. We don't want people thinking about six month anythings that, that are trade-offs or you have the word gamble anywhere near it. What we're looking to do is to have people confident that their plan will meet their needs and in the most vulgar manner that they sleep at night knowing that there is a plan in place, that, that it's been tested against, let's call it the black swans, illnesses and death through insurances and uh, appropriate asset allocation to deal with capacity and change behavior and spending in the circumstances of retirement. So my pet, my pet hatred, which um, I'm sure you were going to ask me, is target date funds. Oh boy. I, also, I, I have mixed feelings about those. I mean, just it overcomes the default bias. But I've never, again, I'm sure you know where you're going to go with this. Just because you're a certain age doesn't mean the allocation is correct for you. Yes. So let me give you an alternative which gives them an infinitely better outcome. In Australia, our default is the equivalent of a 70-30 on average. Okay. Okay. So you go, wow, what does that mean? Okay. Well, it, it means a couple of things. Um, so I, a while ago, I, I decided, let me just test this. So I found the US data back to 28, and I tested 30. So I assumed a target date fund was 35 years. You'd keep your money in for 35 years, and you'd bring it down, say, from 80 to 30% equity exposure. And I just built a model to test 35 years from 28, 35 years from 29 against various asset allocations, and using the Australian one as the upper one, the 70-30. There was not a case in the last 55, 35-year periods where the 70-30 did not outperform a target date fund going from 80 to 30. Not one. There were numerous cases of 40, 50, and 60% better outcomes from being in the 70-30. There is no excuse for using a target date fund based on history. And that's a fair, no. I think it's a fair statement. So interestingly enough, while we were talking, I pulled up the T3 report. And for listeners who don't know what that is, Technology Tools Today is a company out of the U.S. run by a gentleman named Joel Bruckstein, who is the guru of advisor technology in the U.S. And he puts out an annual survey that asks people what they're using. And the risk tolerance section, I got to say, is a sad indictment of the industry. Percentage utilization is only 53.87%. So almost 47% of people aren't using something. Now, you know, you guys, you're right, you're competing with Risk Alliance 1 and 2, but congratulations, you have the highest user rating, so that's fantastic to see. But what I find astonishing is even the people who said that they did use something had no response on what they were using. So yes, pointing towards them using some sort of internal company, unscientifically tested one. So we have a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Uh, 
I just turned 65 and I'm still fighting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'll be old and gray around your age, but it'll still be a problem. But we're making inroads. So, uh, you know, you've been very generous with your time, and I thank you for that. Uh, first of all, let me thank you, first of all, for being one of the few people out there in this world who are trying to turn this art into a science and financial planning and, and investment mm -hmm. management into more of a of something that, that that's more meaningful to people and that actually isn't just based on, again, our thinking slow, uh, the thinking fast functions, but our thinking slow functions. So thank you for that service, because quite frankly, only a handful of players in the world, there needs to be, there needs to be more, more research into this space. Well, thank you, Jason. I have to tell you, it's been great fun. I, I get to tease many, many people uh, <laughs> <laughs> about their approach to the world. Um, and it, it is quite wondrous. I do share that view. It is better to do a good job than a quick job. We all get dividends out of it. It's just a matter of continuing to, to grind on to convince more people there is better outcomes. I glibly tell people we get the world we deserve, we get the regulation we deserve, we get the politicians we deserve. If you don't like MIFID II or you don't like the new Canadian regulation or you don't want a fiduciary standard in the US or the RDR in the UK or FOFA in Australia, it's because we as an industry deserve it. It's, uh, Do something uh, about uh, it. Don't uh, wait for the regulator to set a minimum Set a professional standard. Get Absolutely. off your ass and do it, or otherwise we will be obliterated by regulation. Well, if we think it's bad today, it's worse tomorrow. I'm a big believer in what Charlie Munger says on uh, on incentives. If you can work on incentives, work on nothing else. And unfortunately, in this industry, the incentives aren't exactly aligned towards doing the best job necessarily. However, I say that with tongue-in-cheek because, quite frankly, from personal experience, I know that doing the right job is very lucrative. It's unfortunate that people can't see beyond doing the quick job yeah. and seeing that the longer term play is, is doing it right. So, you know, I digress. Nevertheless, thank you yet again, Paul. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure this will be an enjoyable listen for everybody. Look forward to it. So thank you for the opportunity to talk, Jason. My pleasure. So that was Paul Riznick of Finnermetrica. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. We did get pretty deep into some heavy topics such as regulation and psychology and behavioral finance. And I hope we didn't lose too many people there. But frankly, I think what he does, as simple as it seems, is very important and frankly not done enough of in the industry as you heard him talk about his upward battle. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you uh, join us next time for FinTech Impact. I'm Jason Pereira. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.